HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, listeners. We wanted to let you know that Heritage Radio Network's Julia Child Fellowship application is now open. The fellowship offers an enriching experience for aspiring food writers and journalists who share our passion for food systems change. The fellowship is a great way to progress in the field of food journalism and digital media and will start in early January 2024. This fellowship will provide participants with hands-on experience, mentorship, and access to an extensive network of industry professionals. The application deadline is November 27, 2023. Check out heritageradionetwork.org and click on the Julia Child Foundation Writing Fellowship link to learn more. If you or someone you know has interest in food studies and journalism, this might be a great fit. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and check out the application today. Thank you. You're listening to Fields, the podcast. I'm Wythe Marshall. And I'm Melissa Metric. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements. Hi there. You're listening to Fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture with... Melissa Metric. And I'm Wythe Marshall. And we're here at the Heritage Radio Network studio, where people are like eating pizza and we're looking at them and they're wondering (laughs) who are those people watching us? What are they talking about? Got to tune in to find out, guys. There's actually just two people out there and they're not paying attention to us <laughs> at all. <laughs> they might. They might look up and say, oh, who are those people with the headphones and the mics? Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, Melissa, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, actually, something really exciting happened today. What's that? So um, as you all know, I managed at NYU Urban Farm Lab And I think it was last year we planted um, saffron crocuses and they never bloomed. And I got like kind of, you know, a little bit sad about that. 
Um, but today I went to the farm and I saw this beautiful purple flower, this purple crocus. And yeah, it's how it's fresh saffron. And I showed my class because um, we were harvesting and then we were going to pickle the harvest today or we did. Um, but it was really cool that we got to harvest fresh saffron. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. isn't saffron um, maybe along with vanilla? But I think of saffron as like the most expensive agricultural commodity that's not a hard drug by weight. Yeah, it was so funny. I was like, how much? So everybody look up how much saffron is. <laughs> I was like, what What do we measure this by? A gram? And and then I don't know. the. I don't think we got the numbers right. But but, it, but you only had a few flowers, so presumably this wasn't a lot of we money had one on the flower. Table. One flower, great. <laughs> we had one flower. Very exciting, still. <laughs> but um, that was just the first one to bloom, and we'll probably have a couple. So it's kind of exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. And I also think of the NYU Farm Lab as a cool space because it's right in the middle of New York. It's such a busy area and it's it's really, you know, hidden gem like all community gardens. I mean, it's sort of the, the footprint of a community garden. Um, but you, you get to teach students and you grow hundreds of things, uh, which many community gardens do, not all. Um, and I think it'd be really cool to just add saffron to the list of like plants you've grown and you've seen their life cycle and you've seen the the ups and downs, the, the fact it didn't bloom. <laughs> then, yeah. Oh, bam, here it is. Well, it's so interesting. So um, I think sometimes saffron does bloom the second year instead mm. of the first year. So this is the second year that it's been in the ground. So it makes sense that it, it's blooming now. But also it's a spooky bloomer because we're in the middle of October. <laughs> I usually think of flowers blooming as like a spring summery phenomenon. Yes. I know that there's various plants that like different, you know, parts of the year, but. But yeah, that's a really good point because, um, whenever I plant crocus bulbs, um, I think of it as a spring bulb where I'd plant in the fall and then I would get the flower in the spring. Right. That's when crocuses usually come up, but you're totally right. It, when, when people, when I first heard that it bloomed in the fall, I was just like, that doesn't sound right. But <laughs> But sure but enough, here we go. Here we go. Well, that's great. Well, this is an awesome um, intro because today we thought we would just have a little chat and kind of catch up, which we try to do basically every season, uh, and especially ask about what's going on at the NYU Urban Farm Lab because your job is so cool. Um, I really love teaching, and I've never really got to uh, the experience of doing it outdoors. I think that's a, a huge problem in the humanities and social sciences. We should ditch, you know, the computers and just go in the woods and hang out and talk about books. Uh, but you actually get to do this and, and kind of have this mix of, right, like more, um, you know, straight old school didactic like lessons. Here are things about plants and soil. And then you do lots of work that's more hands on and, and sort of focused on practice. So, um, you know, I thought we could just catch up and hear some of the things you've been up to lately, some of the things the students are up to because we're in October. So it's kind of an interesting season yeah. where you've been working, um, you know, during the summer term. And now the, the main term has kind of started the new school year. Um, but also harvest is sort of about to start. So it's, a, it's an interesting sort of se series of transitions that you're, you're supervising at your, your little space. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, um, fall, like it, it really kind of screws me up a little bit because since I work for a school or since I work for a university, um, fall or the fall semester is the beginning of the year. But as a grower, it's the end of my year. <laughs> right. So I'm just like, wait, what is going on here? So it's like all this activity in school, but we're actually winding down the season. So we only have about, unless we put like up 
um, hoop houses or season extension techniques like a cold frame or put up um, little hoops over our grow beds. We only have about a month left of the season because usually the first fall, I mean the first fall, the first frost is around November 11th for New York City because it's so south. Um, Also, it's surrounded by water. So um, that means that it's a little bit warmer here because warmer uh, because water changes temperature slower than than um, air does. So, for example, upstate, I mean, it's a little bit farther up north, but they've already had a frost. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they have a super short season depending on where they are upstate. Um, Whereas in New York, we still have a month left. Yeah. In New York City, sorry. Because New York City is basically effectively subtropical, whereas the rest of the area around us is basically still temperate. So it's interesting to be in a microclimate that's so radically different. You can really see the differences and they get more exaggerated year over year to some degree. Yeah. And when I was growing up, the hardiness zone was seven a, I think, and now it's 7B. Mm. I could be wrong about that, but but whichever way it, it, it's going, it went up like a half of step in a way, which means that it's warmer here yeah. than when I was growing up. So in some ways, as a, I mean, it's so interesting because we talk so much about climate on this show, but as a, as a um, teacher, it's kind of good to have a little more time to work with students outside, make them do yeah. stuff each term. Um, but of course, yeah, we know that that signals all kinds of probably negative changes. Um, but yeah, so why don't you walk us through, um, from your perspective, when you start the school year, maybe, maybe you could just give us an overview of like the fall term, like what are you teaching? And, um, I know maybe, I know you do different things, uh, maybe not every term, but like over time you try different stuff out, right? So maybe you could tell us, um, some of the new things, things that work better, uh, things that have surprised you like the saffron. That's kind of an example, but I, I'm wondering what else, you know, um, all of your various urban ag activities are kind of up to you. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I think the newest um, things that we've been kind of experimenting with has been doing um, more indoor growing where we have like fruiting uh, mushroom chambers that we have inside the Nutrition and Food Studies Department. We actually bought a a grow tower where we're doing like hydroponics there. Um, But things on the farm, so also... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, Working in urban areas. Um, I would say about three quarters of the farm is covered in scaffolding. So you may ask, how could you possibly grow if... Wait, uh, how could you possibly grow if... (laughs) Three quarters of your growing space is covered by scaffolding? Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. Um, But every five years, the building that the farm is behind, which is... Um, 110 Bleecker Street, which is Silver Towers, they have to, you know, work on the building. So every five years, you know, more or less the scaffolding goes up. But this year they gave us some, a little bit of skylight. So that means that we still get light. And it's interesting because since this, since the sun is lower in the sky and it's more at an angle, it actually covers more of the farm right now. So the farm is actually getting more sun. For folks who haven't been there, so Silver Towers is a big building uh, that NYU owns. And then um, in the basically the back of it on this major um, street, Houston Street, there is this strip of, of farmland that Melissa manages. And um, there's now scaffolding over it, shading it partially. But apparently this year, this time, they gave you all a skylight, which is great. Good to hear. Yes. Um, but yes, the angle <laughs> of the sun changes throughout the year. So that also is something. I'll, it's interesting. I saw at Cornell, um, there's 
there, there, there are probably multiple scholars, but I knew I was speaking with one person working on a long-term project to model shade in urban settings. I might've, mm. I think I brought up on fields before, but it was cool because the idea was to really understand urban greenhouses. And if a farm um, was fully indoors and used a mix of sun and artificial light, you know, throughout the year, uh, how much reinforcement do you need? So how many artificial lights do you need to keep plants growing? And it's, it's so much has to do with, with development. So if you have a bunch of tall buildings around, it really screws up, you know, the light. Um, whereas obviously if you're on the top and, and you don't have anything shading you, um, makes a big difference. So it's, it's, it's interesting to hear, you know, the, the small scale of your yeah. farm, how that shading makes a difference or not and how, how you like deal with it. But yeah, why don't you walk us back? Just if I was a student in your class, like what am I doing from, you know, September? Well, yeah. So it's harvest? really, it, it's an introductory class. So, and it's an elective. Um, and I teach three sections of the class through the nutrition and food studies department. So, um, I get students from all over NYU. So it's not just the nutrition and food studies, um, students that take my class. I get, you know, students from Stern, which is a business school. I get students from, um, Tisch, which is the art school. Like I get students from everywhere, which actually makes it really interesting to have such a, um, I don't know, so many students coming from all these different departments. So I have to kind of start really like think like really with the, this introductory kind of, um, mindset where they might not know they may have never grown anything before, you know, not even a house plant. And so I, I really do go over the basics where like, we'll start, I, I do first go over the history of urban agriculture. Um, and a lot of it is focused on New York city and me being a, a New York city native. I don't know. I also just find it really important to, you know, um, teach these students about New York city history, um, and how urban agriculture is woven into that. And so pretty much we start in the 1890s and we go to the present day. And you could just imagine like all the different. Yeah, there's a lot to and, talk about. Yeah. But do you mention Manahata being part of Lenape Hoking before colonization, before 1609, as, as you know, a reference point of like the land was in some ways similar, but in some ways extremely different. And then, yeah. you know, it begins to be built up and built up. And so like sort of what is by the 1890s, the city is already gigantic. Yes. Um, so just just this, you know, the historian in me is like, oh, wait, you're, you're skipping the whole city coming into being. But I, I get it because there's so much to say, I guess, about like periods when it was there was a lot of growing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that stuff so well. I mean, that's. Yeah, I think I start in the 1890s because I start with the vacant lot program hmm. and I start um, kind of discussing more the sense of urban of of the urban population growing and um, how a lot of people were coming from all of these different regions and folks, you know, it was the American dream. So they didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have a job set up already. Um, a lot of folks, you know, didn't have much. Um, and so just kind of discussing that. And also as immigrants are coming in and out of the city, what are they bringing with them? Like they could be bringing seeds mm. from, you know, where, wherever they came from. Um, I do, it's interesting. I do talk about, uh, so I talk about immigration. I, I definitely also talk about um, the movement of peoples a lot in the sense of, I also do mention, um, you know, the great migration. So, yeah, yeah. um, and I also mention 
you know, I, one of our required books is, um, Farming Well Black by Leah Peniman and Karen Washington. So, um, that is interwoven as well. And we talk about the African diaspora, um, and slavery and, and folks braiding seeds into their hair as they're traveling, um, as pretty much they're getting kidnapped. But so, so I kind of start there in the sense to discuss like movement of people and as the city is building up and as there's these quote unquote vacant lots, what mm. happens to these vacant lots? And, and it's pretty much looking at urban agriculture in the sense of um, when is it pushed? Who's, who's pushing urban agriculture? Who's practicing it? Who's funding it? Um, where is that land coming from? Is that land then taken away? Um, do people have time to practice it or do they not have any time anymore because they got jobs? So it's just like all these different, um, pushes and pulls and, and pretty much it's, it's studying urban agriculture during times of crisis, Mm. because that is usually when it is pushed by, um, you know, pushed by the government or it's, pushed by grassroots organizations or other things. And we see that even up to COVID, you know, like all of a sudden, you know, people weren't working and what did they start doing? They started gardening. Right. And it's also just this like survival thing as well. Like, oh my God, I I need to. No, and it makes sense also to start. I was just thinking like I've taught history classes and, and, you know, people really don't care (laughs) in my experience, young people about the, you know, pre-colonial, colonial and antebellum periods. But when you get to the Gilded Age, because we're in the second Gilded Age, it feels so much more close to their experience, even though they also don't know anything about the Gilded Age. But it's just, yeah. you know, technologically, okay, the light bulb's invented, right? And and so they can kind of begin to picture it. Um, and I think the crazy income, you know, disparities and and the massive urbanization, I mean, yeah, the, all of the, the issues around racism, um, the failure of reconstruction and great migration. I mean, those are things that I think younger people are more keyed into than, than some of the, some of the world of the early 1800s, for example. Um, mm-hmm. so I think it's, I think it makes total sense. And I, I think it's interesting to start with, um, to start with New York city as already kind of like hegemonic, like it's such a big powerhouse and yeah, people are already having these debates that they're still having today, right. About yeah. the best use of land and how communities can kind of take care of each other in the absence of certain forms of support from the state. Um, and when the state chooses to kind of intervene and say, oh yeah, that's a good idea. You guys should, you know, grow more, mm-hmm. do more market gardening, whatever. Yeah. And that's to say like, you know, I, that's, that's not saying that I don't think that, you know, um, pre-colonial, um, agriculture isn't important. Oh yeah. Know? No, not at like all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's just also, I, I think it's still something I need to research more. Um, and kind of look into. So it's like, if I'm going to put that into my lesson plan, I need to do a lot, a lot of research on that. And also, you know, what, what were the Lenape, um, doing where, where were the main sites? You know, I, I know a little bit about like the fishing or collecting, um, what is it like oysters or other shellfish and that kind of thing. And, and these huge mounds that used to be in Manhattan, um, with all the shelf, which with all the shells from the shellfish. Um, and, and this is all hearsay, but, uh, wait, who was I, I was talking to somebody recently, um, that we were talking about when the, when the Lenape quote unquote sold the land to the Dutch. Um, it was kind of a joke and it was kind of a cultural misunderstanding 
Um, oh, my, uh, so, so my partner was talking about this. There was a cultural misunderstanding because within, you know, um, Lenape culture, nobody owned the land, just like nobody owns the sky. So in the sense of like selling land, they were just like, that's a joke. Nobody owns the land, you yeah. know? Cause if you think about it, like, yeah, nobody owns the sky. Granted in New York city. Now we have like you know, airspace and all this other stuff. So people do own, I guess, quote unquote, this guy. But so when they sold Manhattan, it wasn't, they were just like, yeah, right. Like we're not, yeah, you yeah. can't sell the land because nobody owns it. So it's just like this really interesting thing. And I always heard growing up, because I grew up in Staten Island, that they actually sold Staten Island for more than they did Manhattan because it was their hunting grounds. Yeah. Um, which again, I could be completely wrong about that. But, um, yeah. Yeah. No, that, uh, well, this is, yeah. And I, and I Sorry. think we get the idea uh, that <laughs> so I digress. there's a unit, yeah, there's a unit on the history of urban ag and we know it, it's, it's, so it spans from roughly the Gilded Age to the present. And I know there's, there's just tons of stuff there and you could go, um, you could start anywhere. I mean, that wasn't a critique. Your, yeah. your choice is just, just thinking out loud about like, um, syllabus design and stuff and, and yeah, teaching a 14 week history course where you're not doing practice is very different. I imagine than constructing a syllabus where you're mixing like different kinds of activities. So you're just trying to give this overview and sort of bring people in. Um, but yeah, so let's, so, so you start with history. Um, then what's next? When do we get planting? Yeah. So I start with history and it changes every semester and it also changes depending on the season, but I try to get them to do, um, like I try to do like a season propagation class pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and they also do all these growing projects where they have to, where we do a workshop in the class and then they have to go home and actually grow out plants or mushrooms or hydroponics or something like that. Um, and usually that scares them at first because they're like, I don't know how to do this. They and all like, think they're going to kill the plant. And yeah. Get a and zero. I'm like, you know what? It's okay if you kill the plant. It's more about like learning about the space that you're in, in your own habits and what, what is the best, um, I guess what is the best technique for somebody's lifestyle and their behavior? So for example, if I'm super busy and I'm like nonstop doing things and it wasn't my job, um, and I'm like, you know, my poor indoor house plants know this, um, but I would probably do a system that is really low maintenance. If um, I'm really into plants and every day I want to wake up and like mess with my plant, then I'll do something a little bit more high maintenance. Um, if I'm in an apartment with no light, um, first I'm going to have them do an experiment to see actually um, how plants respond to the light that they have. And then at looking at how the plants respond, then we see if they need grow lights or not. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Well, like in professional indoor farming, um, there's a lot of measuring of of like par, like available yeah. uh, radiation. Mm -hmm. So how much, how many photons uh, per per yeah. square centimeter, or whatever, are actually you know hitting your plant? And because it can vary, even within one greenhouse where it's meant to be even, there there can still be darker and brighter spots. Like mm -hmm. that's actually of interest to business folks because they were like, oh man, if we just move the lights a little bit you know, we get better results. So it makes total sense to kind of try to begin to get that mentality of like what the plants want is, you know, water, light, like it's not, yeah. it, in some ways it's complex. In other ways it's like, yeah, it's pretty simple, but you do have to, I, I know this also at home, like, oh yeah, there's certain windows where I know mm -hmm. the plants will be generally happier over time. And 
Yeah, but it's yeah. also like I find it so interesting how it's really studying our own behavior mm. and how we take care of things and do we have time to take care of things and what do we value and what do we not value and how could we get a growing system that helps with all that. Yeah, knowing your or, space through this activity, through care for another thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's a different way to see your own um, apartment or house. And also you. Right, right. right. Whoa. <laughs> Talk about you, wife. Whoa. No, the mirror, it's too real. Uh, okay, great. So we have we have uh, history of urban ag. We have um, sort of propagation at home, and um, they can kill the plant, and they don't get a fail. No, uh, but they have to explain to me, why but... it died. <laughs> okay, so they have to they have to observe and report. So that's yes. scientific. Okay, I like that. And how they would do it differently next time. Awesome. So are they also at that point joining you on the farm? Yeah. So well, it depends because if it's a spring semester, not right away because it's still cold out. But for the fall semester, I try to get them out there as soon as possible because also we're only out there until November. Um, so we have a couple more weeks on the farm. And then we're just going to start working indoors um, and doing like indoor classroom stuff. Um, yeah, so so we do a lesson on like propagation and um, and also like really what seeds are. Um, and then, you know, we do classes on transplanting. Um, I do a pest and disease management, which is really fun. We just did that last week where I pick out all of these samples of plants that are kind of like just messed up. And especially in fall, everything has like a diseased or a pest. <laughs> so and then some things have multiple things. And so I take these samples and I lay them all over the table and I have my students like, I do a lot of group work with them too. There's only 15 students. Um, we like to keep it small cause it's so hands-on. And so I have them take their sample, try to identify what their sample is. Um, and then run around the farm and look for that. Um, and try to find what plant it is and then try to figure out, is it a pest or a disease? Um, or is it a weed? So we do edible and non-edible weeds. So it's kind of fun. I, I like to really have fun with them and play a lot of games. If that, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. Yeah. Try to get them to go out and do things on the farm, but in a scavenger hunt, like there's a fun game mechanic. So it's yeah. not like boring homework or classwork. Yeah. Yeah. And then I have them all talk about what they found. Yeah, that makes sense. And you're kind of using it. It's kind of the opposite of visiting um, sites where they're commercial businesses in cities that are trying to keep spaces extremely kind of sterile and they're growing a few crops. Oh, yeah, yeah. Generally, some places like Farm One grows more of a variety, but they're they're trying to keep out, you know, weeds, whereas in a way you you couldn't possibly do that on Houston Street. So I know yeah. you do weeding and you, you know, there's this constant sort of fight, but it's like you're almost embracing that, which I love, mm -hmm. love and highlighting it for the students. Like there are always going to be these problems growing outdoors um, and, and there's different problems indoors, but yeah, you certainly have more environmental pressure, you know, right in the middle of things. Yeah, but I also like talking about because, you know, maybe we've we have mentioned this in the in the podcast before, especially when we interviewed new epoxy library. Ellie Irons uh, yes. and and Prococo. They're great artists. Um Yeah, but they next epoxy library. Yes, is next epoxy project library. together that yes. we had an episode about. Yes. Um but they used weeds a lot and um, kind of like what are the different uses. And so I like to talk about edible weeds a lot and how these edible weeds, a weed is just something that's kind of what we didn't plant. 
Um, so, and also sometimes it's, it's, uh, it could spread really fast or and it could be a problem in agriculture, but, but to your point and Ellie's point, it's like often we call things weeds that are actually, they have a function even beyond like, okay, yeah. why are we hating on all these plants? But a lot of quote unquote weeds like chives grow cr- like crazy in our windowsill yep. garden at home and they're chives. I mean, they're delicious, but mm-hmm. they're just random tourists that have, you know, popped off. Yeah. Um, and, and I like to show the, like even the nutritional value of them. Like for example, purslane is one of the only plants that has mm. omega threes, you know, lamb's know quarter is considered like, you know, their common name is considered like some, some kind of spinach, but they might actually have more nutritional value, you know? So, so there's these certain crops that for whatever reason we call it a weed. And sometimes these crops, so lamb's quarter also almost looks identical to quinoa. Like I'm growing quinoa right now on the huh. farm. And I thought they gave me the wrong seeds and I was just growing limbs quarter. And I was like, ah, oh, ha you fooled me. Um, and maybe that is the case because keen- we don't have quinoa yet. But um, but um, just showing like how certain cultural uh, varieties could be considered a weed, but in previous times, they were not considered a weed. Right. It's contextual. Weed yeah. isn't a, it's not a botanical term really. It's It's an agricultural term in that it has to do with like, you're growing stuff for, you know, in modern day for, for money. Yeah. And if it's not the thing you're growing, then it's putting pressure on the plants that you are growing. So it's bad, quote unquote, bad. Unless you're smart and you harvest it and you sell it. Right, right. And so that's, <laughs> yeah, we can reframe this all kinds of different ways. But to your point that also the plants over time have changed that people wanted to grow for money. And some of it is has to do with, you know, nutritional density or shipability or something. But some of it, to the, to the examples you just gave, is kind of random in a way. And it's like, yeah, why don't we eat more purslane? Purslane used to be, yeah. as I understand it, and in, in at least like, I don't know, Western European diets, like I think it's mentioned in old English crap more. Mm-hmm. And now it's sort of a thing. I think most people on the street would be like, I don't know what that is. If I was well, like, yeah. Do and you here, like purslane? Yeah. Here at Roberta's, they used to have a purslane salad. Like I knew, I started learning about edible weeds through this restaurant because that's what the chefs were asking for because chefs got into foraging and what was being foraged, edible weeds and also other native plants and things like that. So, um, yeah, I, I remember when I first started here, um, my, the, like the chefs that I was working with really wanted wood sorrel, which is also called oxalis and it wasn't growing in the beds yet. And it's a, it's a weed, it's an edible weed. And I remember going out to California, maybe I've talked about this before on the show. And there was like, um, there was wood sorrel everywhere. And I was like, oh my God, how do I bring it back for the chefs? <laughs> it's like so dumb. Uh, just wait, you know, a couple months and all of a sudden you have wood sorrel everywhere. So, um, yeah, I, it, it's, you know, who values it, why they value it, you know, who's putting it on a platform, who's taking it down, that kind yeah. of thing. So you do, okay. So you do the history propagation, um, looking for pests and disease. Yeah. Getting and then out on the farm. Yeah. And then today we did a harvesting class where we go around the farm and, you know, I pretty much just show them how to harvest everything and how it changes on the crop. Um, and then we, um, we went to the kitchen and we pickled what we harvested. That's awesome. So preservation technique. I mean, we're, we're in the fall now, so this is the time to learn about preservation. And then also in the seeds class, we do talk about seed saving a little bit as well. Like, um, NYU has the NYU seed library now where we just got this big, beautiful cabinet and we're trying to collect more seeds so that we could put in, put it in our seed library. So I like, um, talking to them about, you know, seed saving, 
Um, and also just like, I don't know. I just like talking to them about things that would seem like common sense, but we are so removed from certain things. Like I, I have them look out over the farm and I'm like, okay, guys, um, what produces seeds here? And you should see like a lot of their faces. What do they think? Well, the obvious things like, okay, yeah, tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, like all the fruit. We're like, yeah, that produces seeds. But I'm like, what about lettuce? What about kale? What about beets? Like, like, because a lot of times we are going to harvest these things before they're producing seeds. So these students have never seen them in that plant cycle. Right. And they don't even know that they do that plant cycle. Well, this is another aspect. So you're talking about, you know, history. You're talking about a lot of the the fundamental basics of horticulture, like learning some of the growing techniques. Yeah. But now you're getting into botany and like the very basics of plants. Like what is a plant? How does yeah. a plant exist in earth differently than, you know, a person or a dog or whatever? And I think that is just so fascinating that you're you're having to do all of that and you can kind of mix it up and do different pieces at different times. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard it makes sense, I guess, if, if someone had just never worked with plants to just assume that, yeah, we always harvest lettuce before it bolts or whatever. So yeah. they've just never seen the flowers. They've never thought they about it. They don't even know what bolting cycle. is. Right, <laughs> you know? right, right. Yeah. <laughs> like they're like, what? What is bolt? <laughs> like- <laughs> so you walk them through that as well. You yeah. have this kind of botanical yeah. bit built into the horticultural. Yes. You know, and I should say work. some of my students do have experience and some of my students have worked on farms before. Right, right. And, you know, everybody comes from different um, experiences from different, you know, life experiences and things like that. So I shouldn't say all, but some of them. Right. And not to diss the students at all, just, just just thinking backward about like how you would teach this stuff is, is I think really interesting because it's, there's a lot to teach. Well, and yeah, I just like going over the basics and that's why I was talking about sunlight because it's like, I asked my students like, okay, how many hours of sun did we have today? When did the sun rise? When did it set? And they're all like, uh, you know, cause it's like, we don't think about that. And I was like, look it up on your phone. How many hours of sun do we have today? You know, like I, I like to do that around the like spring solstice or sorry, the spring equinox or the fall equinox. Um, and I also do it during the summer solstice. Um, we're not in school during the winter solstice, but these are like a lot of things when people think this is just like hippie stuff. It's like, no, it actually has a lot to do with growing. Right. How many hours of sun do we have? Well, it's a misattribution of causality in history. So it's like every single culture on earth had mystical traditions arise around harvesting around Mm -hmm. the solstices, the equinoxes. And it's, it's like, well, the reason for that wasn't because they were quote unquote hippies. Like the the hippies are one example of, you know, people bringing back or kind of you know, modernizing beliefs that have to do with fundamental, you know, in a way, um, what do we call like social reproduction, right? Like how do you have people live the next year? Well, you need food. Yeah. And so how do you grow that food? Well, you need to know when the food is going to grow best, where it's going to grow best, all this stuff. Yeah. So some of that has to do with, right, sunlight, water, all these things. And of well, course you have beliefs about them because they're sustaining your whole culture. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's why I have a job because that knowledge has been lost. Yeah. Yeah. I think most people to your point, right. Even smart people, they're, they're not thinking about it they don't have experience with it. So they would need a, co- a course. Yeah. To- yeah. And I think that's the main thing. It's like so many students, you know, want to know about this stuff or they think it's a fun course. They're like, I'll garden. Sure. <laughs> right. It's the elective mindset. Yeah, like I don't have to take chemistry, <laughs> like one more class of whatever they're taking. That's really stressful. Sure. I'll go outside and garden, you know, but it's funny. But then like when I start dropping like numbers of like, okay, you know, how many days until the last, 
and until our first frost. And how many days does it take to grow this thing? And they were like, wait a second, math. Like, no, 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 no. we're not. <laughs> We're not doing this, you know. But that's so important. But it's like, like if you don't plans. have enough days, yeah. yeah, you can't do. So crop planning, yeah. So there you go. Another yeah. horticultural skill that yeah. they're going to learn potentially sort of in your class. Well, yeah, because their final project, they get an option to either create a garden plan um, where they go to a real space and they have to design it. Um, and they actually have to draw out the design or they could use a computer program. I say they don't have to use CAD because like it would take us all semester to learn that. Um, but so yeah, they could either, um, design a garden plan or they can, um, do a research topic on urban agriculture. Um, and a lot of them do really interesting things. Like if it's a garden plan or if it's a research topic. Um, and sometimes I'm like just completely blown away by their work. And it's just so interesting, like the accumulation of their knowledge and how in the beginning, some of them might not have had any experience. And by the end, they could take, you know, their terrace or their backyard or their rooftop or a vacant lot next door. And they could actually, you know, design, I try to do like a really simple garden plan with them. Um, but they could design something. Yeah, they could, in theory, apply that, right? Which yeah. is really great that you're moving them toward practice kind of throughout and that they can reflect that back for themselves, even if they don't end up doing it yeah. that next month or whatever, the fact that they have that skill and it's in their heads. Because, yeah, it's somewhat the exposure. And I and I, I guess I was just thinking, like, even in other cities, there might be a lot more students percentage-wise who are a little bit closer to different ag traditions. But mm-hmm. I just wonder in New York, like, the students you and I are used to teaching are so often so far, not, not always, of course, there's always exceptions, but so many students are so far from a generation where, you know, they had, or, or like that being cool, like something where like farming or gardening was like an important and cool and normal part of life. And, and, yeah. you know, many of the students, um, you know, that, yeah, at least that I've seen t- teaching essentially young, like engineers, doctors, like they're like definitely not interested in the idea of being a professional farmer. No. Um, yeah. so it's, it's like, how do you get them to see the value in these activities, regardless of sort of their beliefs about quote unquote, good jobs. It's like, well, somebody's got to grow your food and maybe you do want to grow more your own food mm-hmm. or learn to pickle. Um, so I love that there's a pickling thing too. Yeah. And it's interesting. I have some students that do go out and, you know, they, they do become growers. Um, do they ever come back and hang out? Uh, I'm trying to think sometimes they touch base. Um, and then I also have students who, you know, their grandparents were farmers Hmm. or I have some students that actually they have, their family has a farm. Um, a lot of times they're from different countries. Um, but yeah, right now I have a student where her family has a farm. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it gives them a different perspective for sure to go back and talk with their family about what they're doing Mm -hmm. on Housing Street. Yeah. So, okay. So we've talked about. Your plan for the term, which is rad. There's well, just, that's just so some many of pieces. That's just, just some just of it. Some yeah. of it. We also preview. go on field trips. What? Yeah, we do a bunch of fun things. Um, but I think back to okay, question number two. Um, so what's new this year? Anything new, exciting, fun you wanna shout out? Um, anything you're working on? I think I kind of mentioned it, but I think it's more just like getting like helping mm, these certain groups that are a little bit offshoots of the NYU Urban Farm Lab. So for example, I mentioned the NYU Seed Library. So helping that get going again, because a lot of the students um, graduated and we just got this beautiful new, like kind of seed library cabinet type of thing. And I have a lot of new students who are interested. 
Um, also helping the NYU mycology group. So NYU now has a mushroom group, which I've talked about before. Um, and so we got two, you know, fruiting grow chambers for them. So just getting those up and running and they want to start making their own blocks, like grow blocks. And we've done that in the past. Um, so there's that. And then, yeah, again, focusing more on like the indoor systems, um, and my dream is actually on the farm is to grow a lot more perennial plants. So a lot more native perennials. Um, actually, uh, Candace Thompson was just on the farm last Monday and she was doing a workshop with the students about seed saving and seed collecting on the farm. Um, and actually one, a, a student that, a grad student, actually Lee Ullman, who I used to work with a lot at NYU um, before she graduated, she, so when Candace Thompson, um, she runs Solar One, um, which is a uh, edible food forest that's off of the East River. Um, and I think it's around, I could be wrong about this, but like in, in the 30s in Manhattan. And so they had to, she had to take up all the plants because they were building the seawall um, mm. and they were redesigning the whole thing. So she was giving away all these plants. Lee took, um, I think it's a, a choke cherry um, and we planted it at the NYU Urban Farm Lab. And so when Candace was here on Monday, she was like, oh, here's a choke cherry. And then she was, and also Candace gave us um, pawpaw seeds. So if you don't nice. know what pawpaw is, it's a, it's a native tree that's an understory tree that produces these fruit that kind of tastes like custard and vanilla and mango. I don't know. I've heard like all this crazy things. I've never eaten it. But anyways, we planted a bunch of pawpaw seeds around with Candace. And then she looked at the choke cherry bush and we saw like all these suckers growing up from it. And then she's like, wait a second, this is a pawpaw. So there was a, a pawpaw growing with the choke cherry. So we're actually growing a pawpaw there now. Nice. You got a little boost. Uh, so yeah. the, you're adding so perennials that are already yeah. hanging out with other perennials. Yeah. <laughs> so that yeah. was really exciting. And I love to grow more fruiting varieties. I love to like put in some nut trees in there. Um, and, uh, yeah. So that is, that is the goal to like, kind of build it out a little bit more, put in more, um, native perennials, um, and perennials in general. And yeah, that's, yeah. And be able to show maybe the native, um, ecosystem, you know, sort of some temperate forest plants in with each other in a relationship that would make kind of sense, um, ecologically. Yeah. Yeah. So creating a guild, mm. that's what, um, that's a lot of times what it is. It's like you have your herbaceous level, um, you have your like shrub lit level, and then you have your um, understory canopy, and then you have your like higher canopy level. Like nut trees or something yeah. is going to be taller generally, right? Yeah. So it'd be cool to start building out that kind of system. Yeah, you should just get the whole Ewok Village, you know, um, national park kind of vibe in before the next time they're they're redoing whatever they're doing to windows on silver towers. So yeah, they're like, oh well, we can't put the scaffolding up because we have this Ewok Village here, so <laughs> we have to leave Melissa I like, alone. I was like Ewok, and then I was like, oh, Ewoks are. It's not a Got botanical; it. <laughs> it's a zoological term, actually. Um, xenozoology. So uh, that's great. Um, <laughs> Well, uh, anything else you wanted to shout out? Any news? I know um, we're taping this before Fungi Fest 2023, which I think we'll probably attend on Randall's Island, which has a 
amazing yeah, urban farm. Yeah, and maybe by this time this comes out, um, it will have already happened. Yeah. But yeah, so Fungi Fest is October 14th. What's 15? today? The 11th. 15. Okay, so October 15th, and it's from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. We could try to get this episode out super fast. Yeah. That's a question yeah, for me. Yeah, that's true. That's true. 11 a.m. To, to 3 p.m., at Randall's Island, and there's so many cool things happening there. So there's like all these workshops, um, and there's going to be all this like mushroom identification. I'm sure people will be selling mushroom products, and um, yeah, yeah. So uh, and in general, I think that is a fun thing that um, we're going to do more of because my wife is trying to get into selling mushroom products, um, specifically mushroom jerky. So we've just been messing around. She got a really nice dehydrator. We've just been dehydrating just a ton of mushrooms. Yeah. Uh, and also what's new, uh, a wife now has a wife. Oh, yeah. Between <laughs> seasons three and four. That's right. That's true. That so, was an interseason break yeah. thing. Yeah. So congratulations. Thank you very much. Uh, wife and Kay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So stay tuned. Uh, mushroom jerky news. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, all right. Well, I guess if we want to leave it there, this is just a short update intro to season four and, um, yeah, we'll have plenty more to talk about as the, uh, uh, you know, it gets cold. <laughs> we stop going outside so much. <laughs> all right. Thanks everyone. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Thanks for listening to fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture on heritage radio network with Melissa Metric. And I'm Wythe Marshall. Find us at fields podcast on Instagram. Is that it? Yes. <laughs> no underscore, no dot, just fields podcast one word. Yeah, I think it's okay. just fields That's podcast. kind of the way to find us or yes. just, you know, Google it. Yeah. Or on Heritage Radio Network on their website. Fields is powered by Riverside. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.